This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. This month, we're taking a look at the role that genes play in dementia and finding out how researchers are using this knowledge to develop urgently needed treatments. In a way, if it works out, if it's rewarding, just the beauty of understanding something. On the other hand, the understanding can lead to identifying elements that fit all of these needs. So preventive measures, monitoring measures, or therapeutic measures. Plus, a big release of big data from the UK Biobank, and our gene of the month is an expert swordsman. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for July 2017 with me, Dr Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Dementia is an umbrella term that covers a range of neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's, which is the most common form, frontotemporal dementia, vascular dementia and more. Yet, although these conditions all have different symptoms and affect different parts of the brain, they all boil down to the same biological principle, nerve cells dying. And while there are treatments that can help with the symptoms of some types of dementia, we still have no cures. To find out how scientists are using genetics to understand dementia, I went to the UCL Institute of Neurology to meet husband and wife team Rita Guerrero and Jose Brash. I started by asking Jose to explain what we know so far about the role of genes in dementia. In particular, I wanted to know whether these conditions are caused by genetic changes that we pick up during a lifetime, as is the case with cancer, or whether they're influenced by genetic variations that have always been there. As far as we know, it's, it's more from birth. So in cancer, it's slightly different because you can go into a tissue that has the disease that has cancer and you can see if there are changes. In people with dementia, you can't go into the areas of the brain where the disease is occurring and looking at the DNA of those cells only. You know, you can't stick a needle into a brain of a living person and get some DNA out of it. So as far as we know, it's more changes that come um, with a person's genetic makeup. What sort of genetic variations and changes seem to be the, the chief suspects? So for all of these diseases, for all of these dementias, we have a number of genes that we know are involved. And they're different for almost all of the diseases. There's a couple of ways in which we look at genetics um, involved in, in dementias. We look at genes that cause each of these diseases. And these are genes where very rare mutations occur. And when they're there, you get disease. And would those be the kind of conditions that you can see going through families? You get some families with lots of the same type of dementia. Exactly. These are exactly those types of, of, of mutations that lead to these diseases. They, they are very rare. And it's a small proportion of, for example, in Alzheimer's disease, a small proportion of all of Alzheimer's disease is, is familial, has these mutations, a small proportion. But on the other hand, even knowing is that a gene that's very rare is involved in a disease is incredibly informative for us because it enables us to, enables us to identify biological pathways that are involved in these diseases. And so this is a very, um, it's a very active area of, of, of research, finding these genes. So Rita, in terms of trying to understand how these genes, these faulty pathways might be involved, what sort of approaches are you taking in the lab working together? 
Okay, so we, we um, use two main approaches in the lab. We uh, look at genetic variability in families and we compare this genetic variability between individuals that, for example, are living with dementia uh, and the individuals in the family that are healthy. And by comparing the, the genetic variants um, within the family, we are, in some cases, able to identify the mutations and the genes that cause the disease in, in that family. And, and so this is used mainly to find causative mutations. When a patient has that mutation, he or she will develop the disease within their lifetime. But we also use this genetic variability to compare it between large groups of, of individuals living with dementia and large groups of, of healthy individuals. Um, and when we do this type of comparisons, what we are trying to do is to identify risk factors, variants in the genome of these individuals that will either be protective for dementia or that will increase the risk for, for the development of, of dementia in, 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 this, um, in these individuals. We have moved from being able to look at maybe a handful of variants in maybe a couple hundred individuals at the same time. Now we can look at the whole genome, base pair by base pair, so a really incredible resolution when we do this. Uh, and we can do this in a, an enormous number of, of patients and of people. So this really was a big, uh, very, very big advances in the past decade. If there's one thing I know about genetics, it's that there has been this huge explosion of data and techniques, but oh my goodness, it's made things very complicated. So how do you go from, as you described, you've got these very kind of strong affecting gene variations, mutations that track through families, you know they're definitely evolved, they definitely make cells go wrong, cause the cells to die in, in certain types of dementia. Then you've got all these genetic variations in thousands and thousands of people that kind of subtly raise or lower their, their risk of the condition. How then do you pen those genetic variations to actually doing something. How do you know what all these hundreds, thousands of genetic variations might actually be doing? That's a very good question, and it's a very difficult question to answer. So when we do these studies that Rita was mentioning, these association studies, we identify really regions of the genome that are involved in disease. We don't identify genes, and we don't necessarily identify variants that are themselves increasing or reducing risk for disease. And getting from the regions to the actual variants and their effect is incredibly difficult. And so these are things we're working on at the moment. It's a very important question to answer. But for the vast majority of these regions, we haven't really been able to identify the driving and, and the mechanistic of, of those associations. Given that you are finding these variations, you're trying to, to study them, it sounds like a terrible question to ask, but what's the benefit? How can this actually improve the situation for people living with dementia, with their families? What do you do with this knowledge? The first answer to that is directly to the patients. It's, it's very difficult to see what is coming out from here. But uh, from a disease perspective, it gives us an enormous knowledge about the biology and the pathobiology of, of, of what we are seeing in the patients. And of course, the goal is to, to have this information and develop therapies and develop new drugs that are targeted to these uh, genes or to these proteins. 
Now, in terms of, of genetic variability and risk, uh, what can be done and what is currently being worked on is to just model the risk of each person um, according to all the variants that they have and put this all into the same model and just get, you know, a score at the end that will tell us eventually if that person will have uh, a, a much higher risk of, of developing disease or not. One of the things for which these uh, scores are important is for clinical trials. So we want to have the best cohorts in our clinical trials so that we get the most powerful answers from these trials. And if we can identify the individuals that are more um, relevant to each study that we're doing based on their genetic makeup, this is going to enable us to have much better clinical trials than what we've been able to do so far. So there are some direct-to-consumer tests, things like 23andMe, and they look at particularly, there's one variation that's associated with the risk of Alzheimer's, I think it's the APOE gene. What can people take away from these kind of tests? So it is um, the strongest genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. With this said, this means that um, if you do have um, the risk allele, which we call E4 allele, it doesn't mean that that person is going to develop Alzheimer's disease. It just means that it, it, it's at an increased risk for the development of, of the disease. Personally, I'm, I'm um, in favor of direct-to-consumer tests. I always think that having information is a good thing. Of course, you need to be able to deal with the information, and this is what Rita was alluding to. But on the other hand, you know, you want to know as much as you can about yourself. And this is one very good way of knowing quite a few things about yourself. If you do discover you carry this variation that increases your risk of Alzheimer's, is there anything that can actually be done? We hear about things like to reduce your risk of heart disease, you should exercise, you should eat healthily. What can people do, if anything, to reduce their risk of dementia? Well, you can exercise your mind. That's one of the ways um, that we think helps. You can keep um, an active mind, you can keep an active body. We, all, we, we think all of these things um, are helpful, but of course, we don't have therapies. So. Having a risk factor, a strong risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, perhaps will enable you to start earlier to do these things. Perhaps this will um, delay the onset of the disease if you ever get to develop the disease, because as Rita said, having an E4 allele doesn't mean you'll, you'll get disease. So having the information is perhaps in many instances is, is a very useful thing. Jose Brush and Rita Guerrero from UCL's Institute of Neurology. As Jose and Rita explained, we're starting to discover some of the genetic faults and variations that are associated with dementia, but we don't know much about what they actually do. Two people who are trying to find out are Raffaella Ferrari, also at the UCL Institute of Neurology, and Claudia Mansoni from the University of Reading. The one thing you really want to do is to identify genes as a first thing because there is a there is a direct uh, relation between genes and proteins which is important because we immediately know uh, what the effect could be. So this is finding out what genes make stuff that's in the nerve cells that, that could be going wrong? Right. We, we would be able to name a protein which is affected by the genetic variability. The, the, there is a direct relationship between the gene and the protein and normally we know about the function of a protein so we, we may be able at first sight to, to understand a little bit more about what is molecularly happening within either brain cell. 
So you can say, well, this gene looks like it's quite badly broken. It's probably going to make a badly broken protein, so it's probably not going to work. That's a great thing that we can do, but but this is literally just a tiny piece of information that is not still able to give us a, a broad view of what's going wrong in the brain cells. So the basic problem is that, that sequencing studies, that genome-wide association studies, that family studies have thrown up all these genes or these areas of DNA that you say, yeah, they're doing something in these kind of diseases, but we still don't know what. I guess it's like if you look at an office, you can say, okay, this person works in an office, but we don't know what their job is and, and what they're doing. So, Claudia, how do we try and take these genes, what we know about the genes, and then work out what the flip are these things actually doing? Because it's, it's all right to have a, a list, I guess, of the genes that you find, but it's nothing if we don't know what they do. Yeah, this is exactly the problem that we um, are facing, that everyone is facing. Genetics, from a certain point of view, is um, simpler than functional biology because you identify genes in isolation. But then when you try to understand what that gene does, you need to go into the cell environment and the gene in the cell environment works in cooperation um, with other genes and proteins. So you need really to look at uh, something that is more complex. So functional biology normally um, takes a lot more time than genetics to then um, analyze and identify the function associated with a certain gene. And even when we know the function that is associated with a certain gene, maybe we don't know the function in disease because the function of a gene in, in the normal condition is one thing, but then we need to understand how the function changes when there is a mutation. So normally we do this with, you know, all those pesky experiments in the lab with cells or with animal models taking years and years and years. I know people can spend an entire career just studying how one gene and the product of that gene goes wrong in a certain disease. So we haven't really got that kind of time. What are you doing to speed that up? And also the money that we need for doing all those experiments. True, also. So this is why... uh, uh, Raf and I uh, started talking uh, a few years ago now about how can we think of doing something different and find a way to not solve the problem but to find a way to ease the passage of information from genetics to the functional uh, biology. So to give you some kind of clues about where to start looking at a function. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So we decided to, that, that the, the way uh, to go was to stop looking at one gene at a time, but try to have a, a more broad look, a more general overview of what's going on, um, evaluating all the genes that we know are associated with a certain trait, and look at all the genes together to see whether they will point us in a certain direction. And uh, um, for doing that, we decided to start using databases that are already available, already generated, and are uh, freely available in the public domain. To go back to the office analogy, you're trying to use data that's already out there to work out, does this person work in the finance team or the human resources team? So what sort of data are you looking at? Yeah, we look at a protein-protein interaction type of data at the moment. We, uh, we are planning to move to other data sets, but at the moment what we are really uh, focusing on is protein-protein interactions. And the idea is that proteins that work together, they interact. 
And there is a principle which is called the guilt by association principle. So if we know the function of protein A, and we know that protein A interacts with protein B, but we don't know the function of protein B. Well, just by knowing that protein B is able to interact with protein A, we can infer the function of protein B. Uh, so we are using this principle to build networks of proteins, knowing that they interact together and to see for unknown proteins, um, to see where, mm, in which pathways, in which functions they are associated based on the network of other proteins that they interact with. To go back to our office analogy, if you know that two people are always going to meetings together, they're probably working together. Yeah, exactly. That is the perfect analogy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So through this work, through understanding the genes, getting really good clues about what they do to direct the lab research in the right way to find targets for drugs, what do you want to see as the, the key outputs for this? What do you see as coming out to benefit patients and how long, how far away is that going to be? Ideally, the, I think we're probably talking about two outcomes. Um, one is that of understanding the molecular mechanism. What is impacted in the brain cells that leads to their death? This is critical because if we don't know that, we don't know how to, you know, how to handle it and how to tr fix it. In a way, if it works out, if it's rewarding, just the beauty of understanding something. On the other hand, the understanding can lead to identifying either biomarkers uh, in both in preventive medicine or as a monitor of the disease progression as well as uh, or as well as for developing therapeutic measures we might be able to identify elements that fit all of these uh, these needs so preventive measures uh, monitoring measures or therapeutic measures and the other point is that if we know the mechanism, we can actually think of a drug that, can, that is able to impact the mechanism. Because at the moment, we don't have drugs, we don't have therapies for all these disorders, unfortunately. Uh, but we have some, something that we can do, some drugs that we can prescribe to patients, but these are symptomatic drugs. So they don't cure the neurodegeneration, they just work on the symptoms. For example, in Parkinson, we can uh, reduce the tremors, but we don't stop the progression of the disorder. But if we really know the, the, the molecular reason why the cells in the brain are dying, we can think of in, an intervention that is actually directed to, to the problem, and then we can uh, prevent or stop the neurodegeneration. So this is why it's very, very important to understand the molecular mechanism at the base of the degeneration. Raf Ferrari from UCL and Claudia Manzoni from the University of Reading. This is the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Kat Arney. Coming up later, our Gene of the Month is a samurai master. But first, this month saw the release of the biggest ever data set from the UK Biobank, a huge long-term study of human genetics and health. Researchers all around the world are able to apply to download the data and trawl through it to answer vital questions about health and disease. 
I spoke to Professor Peter Donnelly, the Principal Investigator of UK Biobank, based at the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics in Oxford, to discover what all the fuss is about. The big idea behind UK Biobank was to collect a very large cohort of individuals in what's called a prospective study. So those individuals are recruited, uh, they give consent for a range of studies to happen at the time they're initially studied, and then over time there's further information collected either directly from the individuals or with their agreement through linkage with medical records. So it gives you a resource which is valuable and interesting from day one, but which in some sense matures. So as as time passes, some of those individuals will go on to develop some diseases and others will develop others. And the really important thing about a prospective study is you measure lots about the individuals before any of that happens. So you can look back and see individuals, this property, is that likely to happen, and so on. And the fact that it's as large as it is, it's 500,000 individuals, is a real key to its, to its value and its success. And in terms of looking at them at this kind of genetic level, what have you done? A few years ago, UK Biobank convened a group of many of the, the experts in human genetics in the UK to think about how to get best value out of the UK Biobank resource in terms of genetics. Uh, and the very strong view of that group at the time was that the right way to do it then was to measure genetic information in all of the participants of UK Biobank. If, if you are able to decide in advance a set of positions in our genome, in our DNA, to measure, then that can be done these days reasonably economically. And so there was an expert group convened to design the chip, we call it, the array that does the measuring for each individual. And for each person, that allows measurement of about 800,000 positions in their DNA, in their genome. And we're able to choose them so that we could include lots of things we thought might be interesting for diseases, other things we thought might be interesting for other reasons, and then many, many other uh, markers or genetic variants or SNPs as we call them across the genome, which allow us to interrogate the whole genome reasonably effectively. So we've got these 500,000 people, we've got all this genetic information, you've genotyped them. What other information have you got about them? One of the enormous strengths of UK Biobank as a resource is the depth and the breadth of information that's measured on the 500,000 participants. So when each of those individuals was initially recruited to the study, they spent half a day or so at at what's called an assessment centre, where a lot of information was collected about them. They were asked questions about themselves, questions about their medical history. Uh, Many things were measured about them, height and weight, things about their vision and their lung capacity, and so so lots of measurements about them as individuals. Um, They donated blood samples, so some of that had been used for the DNA analysis to give the genotyping but uh, other aspects of those blood samples are used to measure what we call biomarkers, so things like cholesterol levels, other things that are, that are informative about our health circulating in our blood. Since the initial assessment, there have been follow-up studies on collections and subsets of the cohort to get more detailed information from them, so a, a substantial subset of people kept detailed information about their diet over a period of time, which is available on those individuals. Um, There's been some reassessment of individuals and and in a really exciting development recently there's imaging, so different sorts of of medical imaging done on people's brains and their abdomen and and their arteries and so forth, um, which again is a rich source of information. And then recently UK Biobank has succeeded in linking some of the health information kept in our NHS records with the individuals. So there's an enormously rich collection of information 
ordinary things like height and weight and then various medical things and, and really detailed things like images, measurements and biomarkers on all of these individuals. This is something that you are putting out into the world and you want people to use. What sort of things could researchers look for in there? How do you see people using this data? What sort of questions could people ask with it? I think there are a number of very natural things that people will want to study, but one of the really exciting scientific opportunities is the resource is so vast in terms of the genetic data and all the other things that are measured on people that I'm sure there'll be really clever scientists who think of ways of exploiting that data to tell us things about human biology and human disease that we wouldn't guess now. So that's, that's really exciting. What are some of the obvious things people can do? They can look at the relationship between genetic information we have and various outcomes that people have. Now, those outcomes might be in terms of whether they get particular diseases or not, arthritis or heart disease. That could be really helpful in understanding more about the disease and in time developing new treatments for the disease. And another really important thing which UK Biobank will enable researchers to do is to understand the way risk factors we have from genetics interact with other things around us, like our diet, our lifestyle, other aspects of our health. In fact, it's one of the key drivers in setting up the UK Biobank resource was to have a study which was firstly large enough and secondly collected the right kind of information to allow researchers to do exactly that. So up until now, largely, we've been able to look at how whether you have this genetic variant or this one affects how likely you are to get a particular disease. But what UK Biobank allows is to us to ask questions like, if you have this variant rather than that variant and this diet rather than that diet, does it matter? So helping us to learn about the ways in which the stuff we inherit, our DNA, interacts with things about our day-to-day -day life, both, both the choices we make and, and the things that, that we interact with in the environment. That the, the ability to study ge what are called gene-environment interactions um, will be a really powerful use of UK Biobank. So sort of opening up the black box between our DNA and the way we come out. Absolutely, yes. And in terms of this as a scientific achievement, what does this represent? I think there's no doubt that as a scientific research resource, UK Biobank, as it stands now, um, is an extraordinary collection of information for researchers. It's by a long way, I think, the, the most valuable resource of its kind available anywhere in the world. Uh, and one of its strengths is it is available to researchers everywhere in the world, researchers who are working to answer questions that are consistent with the mission and, and the, the framework of, of UK Biobank, and it will only improve. It'll improve in two ways. There'll be extra information collected about the individuals in the study, and as time passes, there'll be more outcomes in terms of particular diseases individuals suffer from or, or other things that happen to them, which would be helpful for researchers to study. How would you summarise your hopes for this data set and maybe for UK Biobank more broadly, say over the next five years? Where would you really hope that this will go? I think scientists studying the UK Biobank resource over the next five years will uncover a whole lot of novel, really key insights about human biology and human disease. And some of those will have immediate impact in terms of the way we treat patients. Others of them will lead to new ways of developing drugs, uh, new ways of choosing treatments in particular situations. It, its impact on human health and healthcare will be enormous, I think. 
Peter Donnelly from UK Biobank. And if you're a scientific researcher and you'd like to get your hands on the Biobank data, you can apply through the website. That's ukbiobank.ac.uk. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's Musashi. First discovered in fruit flies in 1994 by a Japanese researcher, Makoto Nakamura, while working in Baltimore in the US, Musashi is named after the 17th century samurai warrior, Musashi Miyamoto, who devised a fighting style of wielding two swords at the same time, rather than just one. Rather than waving swords around, fruit flies with a faulty version of the Musashi gene have double rather than single bristles popping out all over their bodies. It's now known that Musashi binds to certain RNAs. These are the molecular messages produced from active genes, and it affects how they're processed and read by cells to make proteins. It seems to have a particular role in ensuring that stem cells in the nervous system maintain their stem cell-like abilities. This explains the double bristle effect. Fly bristles are made up from four cells. Two are nerve cells, while the socket and bristle shaft are not. Without Musashi, though, there's nothing to stop one of the nerve cells becoming a bristle shaft, too. There are a few mammalian versions of Musashi, which also seem to be involved in maintaining nerve stem cells and other stem cells around the body. Intriguingly, they get reactivated in some brain tumours and other cancer types, suggesting they might be causing cells to forget what they're meant to be doing and revert back to more stem-like behaviours. That's all for now. Thanks to Louise Walker at the Alzheimer's Society for her help with this episode. I'll be back next month with all the latest news from the world of genetics. Until then, if you've got any questions or feedback, just email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and online at thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll be back next time for another peek inside your genes.